Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published across the U.S. and Canada, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we'll be speaking with Danielle Nirenberg. Danielle is the president of Food Tank, which she co-founded with Bernard Pollock in 2013 to build a global community for safe, healthy, nourished eaters. Danielle is the recipient of the 2020 Julia Child Award. Danielle contributed to the fourth in a series of pieces produced by Edible Communities for publication in Edible magazines across the U.S. and Canada and at ediblecommunities.com. The piece by Elena Seeley, content director for Food Tank, is titled, In Labels We Trust, How Food Certification Labels, Seals, and Standards Can Help Eaters Make Better Choices. It's an explainer and guide leading us into a fuller understanding of how to read food labels, not just on packages, but on produce, meat, and poultry, in order to eat in a way that supports the safety of the growers and producers of our food, our health and safety as eaters, and the health of the planet. It's a lot to take in, and the piece dives right into that bit of overwhelm we feel when digesting all the things we might consider by simply trying to choose a banana, a bar of chocolate, or an egg. Danielle Nirenberg, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. And please call me Danny, Amy. It's so nice to see you. Wonderful, Danny. I'm so glad that you're here. Anyway, for our listeners and readers who might be discovering Food Tank for the first time via the podcast or edible magazines, can you talk a little bit about the organization, its mission, and what you're up to in 2022? Sure, absolutely. Food Tank was founded on this very simple mission of really sharing stories of hope and success in food and agriculture systems across the globe. So both domestically and internationally, and really trying to, you know, see where the bridges are between what's happening in the global south and the global north and make those connections. And we do this in a number of ways. One is through a weekly newsletter that reaches hundreds of thousands of people around the world, farmers and chefs and teachers and professors and scientists and researchers, and really all of us who eat. We really try to share information in a way that is easy to understand as possible. We've also have a really robust social media network. We do our own podcast. We convene events both virtually and in person very soon when we go to South by Southwest in Austin in March. So we have big plans for a Nourishing America tour this year to really shine a spotlight on all the good folks who have kept the food system going in the United States during the pandemic despite so many challenges and really working with communities, academic communities and and community groups to pick themes that really resonate with them, whether it's around regenerative agriculture, the role of technology in food systems, food justice and equity. So we're really excited to begin the tour. And again, looking forward to South by Southwest and knocking on wood that we get over this particular variant of COVID and can do these things safely and well and really bring people together again. So the tour is that visit to various cities where you'll be producing food specific events? Yeah, Food Tank has been doing summits since our inception in 2013, and we really try to have what we call uncomfortable conversations, bringing people together in a way that you know they normally wouldn't interact. So having food justice advocates, for example, on the same stage as corporate executives, and really having blunt and open conversations about where the food system needs to go, what needs to change, how it can change, what kinds of investments are needed. So the Nourishing America Tour, your listeners can find out more about it on foodtank.com. We'll be visiting many cities starting in Austin and then going to Santa Barbara, but all over the country and, and hitting places, you know, 
especially in the Midwest, that don't get as much attention, I think, I'm originally from the Midwest, that they need. There's so much good food system work going on in places that are often overlooked or considered flyover zones. Great. Well, that sounds really exciting. I'm very much looking forward to getting back to meeting with people and convening in person And just there's a synergy and a sort of serendipity that happens that is a little bit different from when we get together online. Absolutely. I had the chance to go to COP26 and I was in Barcelona for the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact late last year. And just being in person again, being around people who are really passionate about these issues is such an exciting thing. And especially I was inspired by how young people are really leading these issues at these big events, these big global events where when I was their age, I never thought I would be in the room. And these young folks are taking it on like they belong there and they do belong there. And it's so exciting to see that. I agree. And I find it really inspiring. And um, I know I have a 21 year old who's an environmental activist. And and I think at some point, you know, that age group, they worry that because they're so active that we'll maybe want to step back. But I, th- I think on the contrary, I just find it really inspiring. It makes me want to do more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in the opening of uh, In Labels We Trust, the article quotes Brian Ronholm of Consumer Reports. And he says, unfortunately, the burden is always on the consumer in terms of evaluating the veracity of the label. And that made me stop and think because I was like, why is it up to the consumer to judge whether labeling is accurate or truthful? What about laws that govern what producers can and cannot claim? Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much onus placed on consumers. And despite laws and regulations, there's so many labels and certification standards out there that you do have to really be this conscious consumer and, and find ways to learn about what the labels actually mean. And that's why we were so excited to write this piece for Edible and with Edible because we just wanted to demystify some of this and make it easier. So, you know, the 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 short version of the article that will appear in print, I think you could you could carry it around with you if you needed to, right? And take it to the grocery store and and or, you know, have it on your phone. And it could be a really, you know, uh, a helpful way to to guide you through the buying process. There's there's so much information out there. And what we try to do is talk to experts who are really clear about, you know, uh, identifying, you know, things that are 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 important to consumers. And sometimes you sort of have to pick and choose, right? Like what's important to you? Is it animal welfare? Is it food justice and, and justice for farm workers? And, you know, really concentrate on that because that one label is going to fit everything that you might be concerned about. It's true. And and just sitting with this idea of the onus being on the consumer for a minute, the essay appears at a time when it seems like the media zeitgeist is all about truth, right? As information consumers and food consumers, we're kind of constantly asked to think critically and judge what we can and should not believe and eat. Right. And since I'm I'm a news and fact and food nerd, and I still find it strains my brain a little bit and makes me tired. Me too. So yeah. So <laughs> I'm kind of wondering like, how do we reframe food buying to make it feel fun, maybe, or make it feel like it's actually feeding us, right. you know, nourishing us in ways beyond nutrition and and nourishing those from whom we buy as opposed to a chore where we're in danger of making the wrong choice. <laughs> 
I, I think we're at such a different point in, in what we can call this movement, because I think so much was unveiled during the last, you know, 22 months or whatever, wherever we are in the pandemic at this point. And I think consumers are thinking very differently than they did, you know, in 2019. So in, in one respect, maybe, you know, one of the few ways that the there are silver linings to the pandemic is consumers now understand I think in a way that they didn't before, it's not just the grocery store workers. It's not just the processing plant workers. It's the truck drivers. It's everyone along the food chain. And so I think people have a different consciousness around food and where they, it's not, the the personal has also become sort of uh, global. So people, you know, are obviously more concerned about their health than ever before, partly because of the pandemic, but they also understand that so many people are affected by the food system in a way that I don't think they did before. So, uh, you know, it, it's it, that kind of reframing can give consumers, eaters, power to make different decisions that they know will have impacts. You know, uh, you know, if, if you don't care about animal welfare, you probably do care about people. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there are ways to make changes in, in the food system um, that go beyond, you know, just what, what consumers have been used to for the last several decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think always when these questions come up about privilege and who has the privilege to make these kind of choices, these conscious choices and, and who is in an area where the choices for food are limited. And I, I always feel like, how can we empower those, you know, with, with restricted means to feel ownership and to feel, you know, that they have some food sovereignty, that they have some choices. So, and I, I I guess it's kind of uh, perhaps something that, you know, it's a rising tide effect, one would hope, but I feel like we also need to take conscious action in both directions. Oh, in a million different directions, right? I mean, to make food accessible and affordable and healthy, everyone deserves the right to to sustainable food that is produced in a manner that is good for people on the planet. And right now that's not happening. And, and so I think you're absolutely right right uh right on about this power aspect and and where we are right now and one of the things that we found out when we were writing the article is about this food justice certified label that i'm so excited about because it 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 does protect you know farmers and farm workers in a different way than any other label the, but the fact of the matter is that it's not widespread and it needs to be. And, you know, we we interviewed Leah Penniman from Soul Fire Farm, who's, you know, one of the many food heroines in this space, who's just so dynamic. And, you know, these she she's really great at, at pinpointing these are difficult discussions to have in a country that is, you know, uh, built on inherent racism, especially in, in our food and agriculture systems. But we need to have these discussions and we need to think about the origin of our food systems and change it. And, and this, this food justice certified label is just part of that, that change that we need to see happen. How else can we protect food workers and producers beyond this hopefully growing label? I mean, there are a number of different ways. I think, you know, as a, you know, someone who's always been concerned about where, where food comes from, I think the regenerative organic certified label that is taking on sort of more, it's getting more popular is one way to do that because it looks sort of beyond just the, the organic standards that were developed in the 1990s and and really looks at our, our food system more holistically, that it's not just about organic, uh, you know, how, how food was grown, but, you know, how it affects 
the overall sort of environment around it, including uh, workers and farmers and and, and others. So I, I think there's a lot of a lot of uh, ability for that to take on more popularity, uh, especially with some of the brands that are behind it, including Dr. Bronner's and and Patagonia, and then uh, of course the wonderful uh, Rodale Institute, who who have been pioneers in making sure that um, our food systems are sort of um, uh, again, this word unveiled, I it always pops into my head, you know, unveiling what is behind uh, uh, how our food is grown and, and the impacts it can have on the environment and 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 our our, our human health. So I, a lot of our readers are probably have read a bit about regenerative organic, but for those who don't, do you mind giving a little elevator pitch as to exactly what it is? So the regenerative organic label works to improve soil health, animal welfare, and this idea of fairness, which I think gets to a lot of what we've been talking about with equity and affordability and 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 the the social justice concerns that many people have around how our, our, our food is grown. So um, there's a real incentive for improvement um, because there's a three-tiered certificate Cation plan in the or certification process in the regenerative organic label, so producers can earn a bronze, gold, or or silver or gold label, and so there's incentives to keep improving. And I, I really like that because I think you know it's it's not just enough to to be you know sort of get your stamp. You need to keep improving and 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 have that um, ability to show that your consumers and your constituency and, and other companies and, and other producers that there, there are ways to do this even better than before. Are there big barriers to entry to regenerative organic? I know that even um, USDA organic or other organic certifications can be challenging for small farmers. I mean, I think all of these certification standards have real barriers to entry for, for farmers because there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of, of, you know, getting um, folks to come and visit your farm and, or visit your facility and those kinds of things. I think um, that it's kind of a, a conundrum because we, you know, farmers want to do their job and they want to do it to the best of their ability. And from my perspective, from visiting farmers all over the world, they're the smartest people I know, but they just want to do their jobs. Not all of them are great at, at, at the business side. Not all of them are great at the communication side. And so what I think they need is help. And, and there, there uh, are, I know, you know, consulting firms and organizations out there that are working to help farmers get through these process uh, uh, of different kinds of labeling and, and help them to do it better, but they, that requires money. So I, I think, you know, eventually there needs to be some sort of incentive program from the federal government to help farmers, you know, get through the, the, the entire process because it is cumbersome when you're just trying to grow food and feed your family and feed others really well. And so I think, um, you know, there, there, we have a long way to go in making this equitable for, for producers as well, especially the small producers. Do any of the labels themselves, the uh, like the regenerative organic label, do they have a mission of equity or access that includes reaching out to, say, Black farmers to try and increase that um, population? It's a good question. Um, and, and one we we tried to dive into a little bit in the piece with the, the food justice certified label. But I, I don't know if, if regenerative the regenerative agriculture label is, is working on that. I hope they are. I have a feeling that they are, but I don't know. 
Sometimes to me, the labels themselves kind of feel a little bit like nesting dolls, kind of the way that regenerative organic <laughs> is already organic and maybe fair trade is organic and maybe some organic is fair trade, but not necessarily. Right. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit to the hierarchy of labeling and if you were picking one label to focus on, what might that be? Uh, such a good question and, and such a hard one to answer because I think it's different for different products, right? So I'm, you know, more of the mind, you know, I, 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 I think it depends, you know, one of the, the people we interview uh, in, in the piece talks about like, you know, figure out what you're passionate about and then find the label that, you know, speaks to you. And I think that's the best advice, right? That you have to, so if you're interested in climate, look for the, the, the climate certifications. If you're interested in, you know, um, making sure that, that farmers in the global South are, are protected, look for those fair trade labels that really do that. If you're interested in women farmers, look for, you know, things that, um, are, are those labels that are working to improve, uh, uh, farming conditions uh, and, and and gender equity. Um, if you're interested in animal welfare, look for you know the animal welfare certified labels and and others that are that are doing that. But it really has to come from from the consumer themselves because again, not all labels are, are are created equal, and not all labels are going to to cover everything at this point until we have a truly regenerative equitable food system, not, not every label will be able to cover what, uh, you know, what we want it to. The article also mentions uh, the idea of labels that can be ignored, which I thought was kind of good news. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the piece mentions all natural as one that we can overlook. And when it comes to eggs, for instance, hormone free, can you talk a little bit about meaningless labeling and how we can tune out some noise? I think, you know, the, the all natural label, because it, it, it means nothing. I think we have a, a level of, of consumer engagement now where consumers understand that. So I, I, I think um, the the food marketers and big food will eventually stop using it because, again, it means nothing. Um, but it, it is interesting how that label has evolved because, you know, I think if, if someone saw that label in the 1970s, they would think, oh, gosh, this is really good for me. And now I think we have a more engaged consumer, especially in the United States, that that that's not falling for that anymore. Yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of the products that we are talking about today are maybe single ingredient things. They're a piece of meat or an egg or a piece of fruit. Um, but when we're talking about packaged foods, I guess I might even suggest reading beyond the certification labels and actually reading the ingredient list and see if that aligns. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it goes back to like, you know, do you want to, do you actually want to eat something no matter if it's organic or not that has, you know, 52 ingredients that are really hard to pronounce? Or do you want to eat something more simple that, you know, and, and, you know, that is an actual whole food, you know, it's, it's going back to what Michael Pollan and Marion Nestle and so many other people have, have suggested over the years, you know, to sort of eat slimfully and, and eat well by looking at non-processed foods. Mm -hmm. So the, one of the things I got excited about in this article is the um, mention about when the, in the portion about fish and seafood, there's a company mentioned called Invisible and they're using blockchain, which uh, we know as, as uh, being connected to cryptocurrency, uh, but it's really just a way of, of uh, certifying or tracking things, right? Uh, it's using blockchain to track the seafood supply chain all the way from the fishing grounds to our plates. So can you comment on that and other ways yeah. in which technology 
maybe in the future could ease this burden on the consumer? Absolutely. And and uh, Invisible is one of those companies that I, I'm really excited about. It's founded uh, by Mark Kaplan, who has you know worked at really big food companies like Unilever, but is, is very interested in this idea of not just traceability, tracing where foods come from, but transparency for consumers and for you know fishers themselves in the case of the seafood industry. Um, they hope to use this technology for other foods as well, including beef. But it, it can really help eliminate some of the, the fraud that has been happening, especially in seafood, um, the slavery conditions that are happening in the seafood industry, because you know exactly where that fish is coming from. And it, it, you know the way blockchain works is that you can't change any of the, the you know, w- once it's in there, it's in there. You can't change any of the information. There's no ability to have that fraud. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's such an exciting time to look at how um, combining traditional, especially traditional fishing practices or traditional um, ways of producing food with these kinds of high tech solutions that can really not only help consumers know where their food comes from and who produced it and how they were treated and how livestock or fish were treated, et cetera, but really um, a- enables uh, um companies to be held accountable in a way that they haven't been in the past. And I think that's really exciting to me. You can't get away. I mean, we're at a a point in time where you can't get away with this anymore. And I'm I'm really excited about that. And I know there's so many criticisms around food technology right now, but this is really an area where I see so much um, advancement. It's really ripe for for improvement and and more and more innovation. And again, it's going to help consumers and producers alike. Right. I, I think it's exciting that the people in the blockchain sphere, they use the word trustless, which doesn't mean you can't trust it. It means you actually don't have to have trust because the the code protects everything. There's no like, right. do, there's no judging. Do I like this person or do I like this entity or institution, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So uh, meat and poultry and dairy products are still permitted to be certified USDA organic, even if the animals are raised in uh, CAFOs, so confined animal feeding operations, which are essentially factories. And I was wondering if uh, you could comment on this dilution of the organic standard. I think what's important for consumers to take away from the sort of complexity of how uh, meat is labeled in this country is that the best thing to do is really to sort of understand you know, where your meat comes from, if you're able to. And again, this is some uh, a circumstance where, you know, privileged consumers have a lot more opportunity to do this. Um, but going to your farmer's market, getting to know the, the people who raise your meat is one way to do that. Asking questions at the grocery store or co-op where you, you uh, uh, go to shop is another way. Just really understanding, um, you know, if, if, if the meat was processed locally, if, if the far, you know, how far away it came from. These are all ways that consumers can let, um, you know, get to know a little bit more about uh, the meat system. And I think, you know, we're, we're at a point in time where we're understanding that, you know, not all meat is created equal and that there are, there are producers out there who are trying to, uh, produce meat in a way that is sustainable for people and, 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 and the environment, you know, Nyman Ranch is, is such a good example of this, who pigs are raised outdoors. They're following strict, um, uh, standards around animal welfare, um, Patagonia meat, sorry, panorama meats and, and others. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for consumers to, to understand 
from the producers themselves. And again, technology can be part of this with QR codes and others that really give you the whole story and whole picture of where your meat comes from. Yeah, I think what's really galling um, to consumers is just that the fact that something is stamped in really huge print, USDA organic. So it's given this appearance of organic um, when the lobby has made this these standards, you know, weakened these standards to allow for factory farming. Absolutely. And that weakens the trust in the entire name of organic, really, once you start to think about it. And that's really disappointing. Absolutely. Uh, so in, you, the article talks about animal welfare certified. I think another um, thing that the article mentions is um, grass fed or grass finished when you know that something is not in a in a confined situation if it's certified right. grass-fed, right? So that's another label right. that they could look to beyond organic. Um, and uh, of course, at Edible Communities, we're all about eating local. Uh, so I think that looking to, you know, connecting one-on-one -on -one when you have that opportunity with producers, you know, is always the hope and a way that you can know how what you're eating was produced. Absolutely, absolutely. All, all good points. Well, well, beyond voting with the forks, which is what we like to say a lot, you know, for, for consumers who have the ways to do that, the means to do that, what can, what else can we do to advocate to make these certifications more meaningful and stronger? I mean, I think, uh, you know, we, <laughs> the vote with your fork thing it has always bothered me a little because you can't just do you, it's not just about your buying power, right? It's about your power as a citizen. And, um, my, my friend Bob Martin at the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins University has this, you know, talks a lot about this idea of a citizen eater. And so how can you use your role as an eater, because we all eat, to, to make the changes that we want to see? And again, I think this is where we, we look at, at policies. And, and so you have to vote with your vote for the kind of, you know, um, legislators and, and, and governments that you want to see, whether it's at the national level or a, at your local level. I mean, there's so much ability uh, for, for local communities, for local school boards to change how they uh, procure food. And, and, and you can be part of that by, by, you know, just being more involved. And so procuring organic food, procuring, you know, animal welfare certified food, doing all of these things to really make, you know, local food systems better, because I think that's where we can make the most impact right now, because, um, you know, who knows where our government will be in three and a half years. Uh, and, and, and I think it's those, those city changes, those local changes, those village changes that are really going to keep um, uh, local and regional food systems resilient and keep consumers more informed, whatever regulations around labeling there may be. So is local a way to kind of circumvent having to think too much about Labeling. I mean, if you're talking to the person who's buying your produce, if you're at a farmer's market, if you've signed up for a meat CSA or a fish CSA, do you feel like that's one way that we can kind of filter out what is the certified and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think eating locally and regionally is one way to do that. Another way is seasonally. Um, you know, I think we, we've ignored seasonal eating for a long time and, and not understood the benefits of it. But, you know, you're by eating seasonally, you're going to be buying from local uh, uh, producers and, and, and uh, people who raise livestock. And I think that's, you know, one way to, to get around these labels, as you mentioned. It's, it's, it goes back to how we started this piece, though. 
it, we have to sort of flip how, you know, this is, we couldn't, we should not look at, you know, sort of our, our food choices as a burden. We should look at them as an opportunity, right? And I, even for consumers where, you know, who don't have a lot of time to spend at the grocery store or, you know, uh, thinking about these things, there's real opportunity for change. I think, you know, if we look at food as a solution to so many of our pressing envir environmental and social problems, then it doesn't become a burden to make different kinds of choices and to look, you know, into your food system a little bit more, whether it's finding out what those labels mean or buying, you know, locally and regionally. Can you talk a little bit about uh, more about the environmental power that we as consumers have? Uh, I know, you know, climate change is on everybody's mind and and uh, what kinds of food choices are encouraging and, and supporting of that? I think when we're talking about the climate crisis, there's there's so many opportunities for for consumers and eaters to make changes that they they didn't know about. The climate crisis is so overwhelming to to so many folks, but if they know that they can, you know, what they're doing probably at least 3 times a day can make a difference, then they can make those changes. So, you know, sort of um uh, one of uh, the the things that I've encountered over the last few years is this idea of the double pyramid. Um, so it's a food pyramid that shows, you know, it's sort of your standard food pyramid where, um, you know, the foods that you should eat least are are at the top, and, and grains and vegetables are at the bottom. And if you, the 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 other side of the pyramid is the environmental impacts of those foods. So the foods that you should eat the least often have the most environmental impact, whether it's red meat or, um, you know, uh, high fat or ultra processed foods. So just sort of thinking about, you know, what's going to make you healthy is probably going to help make the planet more healthy and, and help uh, be a, a step towards solving the climate crisis. And we've been hearing a lot about soil health lately and how that is really connected to carbon and, and uh, temperature, global temperature rise. Are there particular foods that we should be looking for that support soil health? I mean, I'm so excited that people are are interested in, in foods like millets and sorghums and phonio, which is because I think just I read a headline today when I was uh, in the car that uh, talked about how the, the U.S. is going to invest in phonio production. And I think there's a, a lot of exciting ways that perennials and what the Land Institute has done over the last 50 years to encourage the growth of perennials that, you know, companies are investing in helping farmers grow cover crops that then can be used in breads and, and you know, other products. There's a lot of exciting sort of uh, uh, stuff happening out there where, you know, we, things that we wouldn't ha have thought could get investment, uh, you know, a few years ago are now the these incredible solutions. So I, I think it's really exciting um, that we're we're investing more in these these foods that have been forgotten, but that indigenous communities, especially in the United States, have have you know invested a lot in and preserving. And they know those are the foods that will are not only the foods of the past, but really the foods of the future as well. And I know Food Tank has been involved in food sovereignty issues and connecting with indigenous communities around food. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? We have just had an incredible opportunity to talk to so many indigenous leaders, including those at the the First Nations and De Development Institute. Uh, Adea Romero Briones has really been our, our a really great guide in, in connecting us with so many indigenous leaders over the years. Um, and you have films like Gather that have shown the importance of of 
the rich cultural traditions around indigenous food systems and how we have so much to learn from them and, and, and not just around how, um, the food is grown, but how it's preserved and, and how it's honored. And I think, you know, we have a, a lot of ability to, to learn from those practices and, and also honor them. Those, those practices really need to be honored and, and those traditions that have often been looked down, down upon. And, and the, you know, the U.S. government was, was trying to, I think, for so long to erase those indigenous uh, traditions. Now we have to bring, you know, the 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 idea that these are the things that should be valued and and honored back, and so that we can all learn from them. And possibly another uh, opportunity to look locally and connect with the communities in your area, because likely the land that you're on might be might have a first peoples there. More than likely, right? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Uh, and what about food waste? The um, the article touches on that as well, and the um, carbon neutral certification. I know a lot of the um, talk around food waste and, and the environment is again around consume what consumers are doing, uh, when really corporations are the biggest generators of food waste. Uh, so how do we how do we look to how do we make choices in our buying that's going to support that? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, a, a again, a, a really complicated issue. But I, I think, you know, again, consumers have been blamed for something that they don't have a lot of control over. And one of the things that I'm excited about is, you know, uh, upcycled foods, foods that are are made from from the parts of, of plants or even animals that otherwise would have been wasted, but have a lot of nutritional value that don't need to end up in landfills that can be made into lots of different things, um, including animal feed, do good food. Foods uh, recently uh, has launched their their chicken feed that they're making out of uh, retail food waste, and I think that's really exciting. And so there's lots of opportunities there. I think you know we're in a space right now where uh, mission driven companies, companies that are newer or trying to sort of change their practices, are really going to be leading a lot of this change on on food loss and food waste, and and making it profitable, but also making it something that people can feel good about buying, that they can feel really sort of like they're part of, of the solution. And I, it, it's not greenwashing. And I think that's something that, that we've, you know, as consumers, we're always scared that we're being, you know, misled by something, but these mission driven companies are, are, you know, they're using blockchain. They're, they're making sure that everything is super transparent and things that, you know, can be traced. So it's a whole new world that I think we'll see over the next few years because of what these mission driven companies are doing around food loss and food waste and so many other issues. Do you think there's upward pressure towards larger corporations, you know, where we have seen a lot of greenwashing to get better by what the small companies are doing? I think there's no doubt that big food is a little nervous right now around all of the innovations that are happening from small and medium-sized business. And they have a lot to learn. And I think, you know, one of the ways that they've done this in the past is by acquiring companies. That doesn't always have to be a bad thing, though, if you can sort of, you know, involve the mission that started those companies in the first place into your larger mission as a big food company. But I think what I always fear is that, when big companies take these things on, they dilute the integrity of it. And that's what we have to watch out for here. But I'm optimistic. I think, you know, things are changing in food business. And I think 
if a company that is very large doesn't start making these changes and start making them quickly, especially because of the climate crisis, they will be driven out of business. Consumers will no longer want to be spending their dollars there. And it'll be the small and medium-sized businesses that really take the lead. It's probably worth a quick Google when you're looking at a new company that sounds cool, right? You can pretty much see whether they're owned by Unilever right. or... <laughs> <laughs> and see if that mission is truly a mission or just a statement. <laughs> Absolutely. So are there any standards or goals or issues that you feel like we haven't really given enough time to today? I want to go back to fair trade because it's one of the oldest kind of labels. And it's really important for consumers to understand, you know, if they're buying products from other countries, that these standards are in place. And those, you know, is whether it's Rainforest Alliance certified or others, there's really, if you look for that frog, you can be really confident <laughs> that your food was produced in a way that aligns with things like gender equity and protection of farm workers and reducing pesticide use and reducing the incidence of deforestation. So I think those, as all of these new labels sort of evolve, we want to remind ourselves of these others that were really at the forefront of making sure that labeling had integrity. And so Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified are separate, but connected. Absolutely. But, but, you know, the, the fair trade standards in general, this idea of fair trade and making sure that farmers are paid what they deserve and that they're not being taken advantage of. The idea of, of being able to know where your food comes from and know that the people who grew it are not being, you know, bamboozled, that they're not being stolen from. I think that's really important for a lot of people. And I think we may be feeling like we're really local. We go to the farmer's market and yet some of our very favorite everyday must-have foods. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cooking oils, you know, things that we, avocados, things we really, really depend on, you know. Bananas. Absolutely. Bananas. Yeah. So it's reassuring to know that you feel like that fair trade label is one that we can depend on and keep looking for. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Danny, for speaking with us. It's great to have you here on Eat, Drink, Think. Thank Think. you. All right. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to always be working with Edible. I've been a huge admirer and a huge reader, and it's always been nice to be involved with Edible community. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I can imagine we'll have future collaborations. Awesome. Thank Take you, care. Amy. Bye, Danny. We've been listening to Danielle Nirenberg, founder of Food Tank. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.